How does totalitarianism happen? Totalitarianism starts with mass formation. When a society experiences prolonged periods of anxiety, distress, or instability, the population becomes more uniform in thoughts and emotions. This uniformity supposedly leads people to lose individual critical thinking and adopt a kind of hypnotic, mass, psychology that authoritarian leaders or events can more easily influence. Four conditions of mass formation in a population. 1. Generalized loneliness, social isolation, and lack of social bonds among the people. 2. Lack of meaning in life. 3. Widespread presence of free-floating anxiety and psychological unease. 4. Free-floating frustration and aggression. Hello, dear leader. Happy heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. Welcome to a special show if you're watching me on my Artemis walk. Uh, me and my wife Peter down by the schoolyard, or actually the trails as I'm doing, getting some exercise, getting my Gnostic dad bod in shape. Uh, I don't know why people are acting like it's, <laughs> they're acting like it's Halloween. Man, it's like mid-90s here in September in Northern Illinois. But anyway, it's a special show, as I mentioned. Sometimes the stars do align and, uh, this show started with me reading an audiobook and then getting the, a physical copy, talking to the author, having a conversation with Gordon White. So what we have here is basically a sort of uh, Aeon Bite Rune Soup collaboration. Uh, rune Soup. Rune Soup. Is that what uh, Spectre Clouseau would call it? But anyway. It's a pleasure to have Matthias Desmond to talk about a very important book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism. And it's awesome to have Gordon in it too. And more than an important book, it's a crucial book because uh, we are certainly, or the West is certainly a frog in boiling water when it comes to heating up into a complete authoritarian and technocratic hellscape. So as you many of you know, the work of Matthias, the work of Gordon, and certainly my work is to stop this heat, this uh, destruction of the human psyche and find freedom and individuality for everybody. Matthias obviously comes from the uh, school or idea of mass formation, but there are many other theories and I'm sure many of you are probably wondering Oh my God, between mass formation and archon mind parasites and uh, 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 archetype invasion in the form of the image of Wotan and propaganda and so forth, what's going on? Well, what's going on, It's uh, it seems like the universe is trying very hard to make sure that we end up in a herd mentality forever. And whatever hypothesis or theory you like, that's up to you. But uh, here at Aeon Bite and other shows like Rune Soup, we want to give you all the ideas and choices. So again, you can find your spiritual liberation and get out of that boiling pot. Maybe it's like the Indigo Girls song. Uh, the less I seek my source for, for some definitive, closer I am to find. But information is power and the truth shall set us free. And we certainly don't want to go the route of the central scrutinizer of Frank Zappa's Joe's Garage. I know that's exotic, but it's a great concept album. Or if I want to stay exotic, we don't want to end up like the show Mr. Robot. We want to be free so we can do things like the Artemis Walk and have an Artemis Walk inside our brains. So that's really it. Uh, a lot of shows coming out in September. So brace yourselves. Uh, won't you take a ride on heavy metal with Aeon Bite? We got more shows on totalitarianism, transhumanism, but also shows on King Arthur, Hermeticism, and other amazing topics that will help you become free and find your authentic self. Stay tuned and stay free. This is a special show of Aeon Bite, 
And I'm very excited about this. We will be talking to Matthias Desmond on a book that I really loved and has influenced me, The Psychology of Totalitarianism. Matthias, thank you very much for coming on the show. Yes, it's my pleasure. And uh, thank you for inviting. Pleasure is all ours. And with us, too, we've got my friend and uh, co-conspirator in many ways, and that is Gordon White. Gordon, thanks for joining us all the way from Paraguay. It's a pleasure to be here, Miguel, under such special circumstances. Yes, well, these are, these are special times, and they seem to be getting crazier. Well, Gordon, uh, I want to let you start uh, by asking the question about uh, Matthias's work, and then I'll, take, I'll, I'll jump in, too. Sure. Okay. Well, uh, before we hit record, uh, Miguel and uh, Matthias and I were talking about his work and it arriving at a very medicinal time for a lot of us. You can maybe tell or not in my accent, uh, I'm not native to Paraguay. Uh, I am Australian. And so that's where I was <laughs> for 2020 through 2022 and struggling with uh, when I first heard about your work in 2020, my sister, who is the most educated of my family, she has a degree in international finance and a degree in industrial engineering, uh, was living in France and fell completely into the formation. And I couldn't understand why until I found your work. Uh, and the, the psychology of what was going on in her life at the time, she's very isolated because she was a young mother in an unfamiliar part of France and her husband was working remotely. And all the stuff that was in there, it reopened for me <laughs> the, uh, the understanding that she's a victim of a process here rather than what happened to my sister, who is a very smart person. And that was really medicinal because, as I'm sure everyone listening to this is aware, they were not a pleasant couple of years for uh, friend groups and, and families to, to get through it. And what, I, what was so medicinal in addition to that was I actually did Holocaust studies at university. So it was really nice to see after so long someone centering the work of Hannah Arendt as well. Uh, so I just want to open with that to say thank you, uh, <laughs> thank you, Matthias. The, uh, the the book and the discussions landed at a time that uh, saved some family relations for me personally. I'm happy to hear that, really. That's, that's the nicest present you can give me, to hear that uh, what I wrote uh, has uh, the effect that uh, it gave people the chance to uh, stay connected even if only a little bit, but stay connected to the people they uh, they love. Uh, that's uh, so important. And for me, I will say more, that's the ultimate remedy uh, against totalitarianism, because totalitarianism is always based on um, the fragmentation of society, on the uh, so-called atomization of society, where everyone starts to feel disconnected and lonely, and where the love between individuals is replaced on a massive scale uh, by the love with the collective. That's what totalitarianism is. Solidarity with the collective and no solidarity with other individuals. In a totalitarian system, a mother reports her child to the state and the child reports its parents to the state. And this terrible, cruel, psychological process uh, uh, or this event is the, is the, is the effect of this process of mass formation. If you understand what mass formation is and how it works, then you understand that in the ultimate stage, mothers report their children uh, to the state. And as I, and there is one, an interview of me available with a, an Iranian woman, Shoref Eshtali, who lived in Iran during the revolution there, which was a, a large scale process of mass formation in Iran. And she um, uh, had to, was on the first row witnessing how a mother put the rope around the neck of her son on the scaffold and how she, when he was dead, when he was hung, she claimed to be a heroine for doing what she did because uh, she even wanted to sacrifice her own child uh, for this uh, totalitarian state system. So uh, if I hear that, my work makes people um, capable of preserving a social bond with someone they love, then I think that's uh, the most important thing it ca I can I can uh, reach with, with my work. What got you into the study, or the, what 
how did you become interested in totalitarianism? Because if I wind back your career, let's say 15 years, uh, it did, the world at the time had its problems, but it did look like we were moving in a, uh, slowly and unevenly in a different direction. But was there something that happened in your life or so a question that you intellectually wanted to solve that got you interested in the history of totalitarianism and how it happens? And a follow on there is Hannah Arendt, who I think uh, was a genius and, and uh, a she really was. important voice. Yes. No, it's hard to say. Uh, I don't know if you know uh, Michel Houellebecq, uh, whom I mm -hmm. consider the most uh, evocative writer at the moment. Um, he said, um, what for me is most characteristic of a human being is that it is a mystery for itself. And that's not different for me. I also don't know exactly why I do the things I do, but, but you know, I... I if I would try to answer your question a little bit, then I would start with uh, how I started my academic career. I started my academic career um, back in 2003. And um, I, I started with doing a classical research in psychology. And after a few months, I didn't want to continue with it. Because in my opinion, it, these research methods just didn't make sense. And I asked my promoter if I could do a different research, if I could investigate the quality of academic research. And uh, I, I could, I was allowed to do so. And I, 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 I uh, got an additional master degree in statistics. And I really started to delve into the, 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 the problems with, uh, uh, with, the method, met, with the methods used in academic research. And while I was doing so, in 2005, uh, the so-called replication crisis started, which showed that in certain academic domains, like the medical sciences, um, uh, uh, up to 85% of the research uh, was completely flawed and actually, uh, from an academic point of view, worthless. And uh, I, I, I wrote my first book about that, about the technical, the, 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 the technical problems with academic research. And for me, that was the first time that I noticed that it is possible that an entire society follows certain narratives, yeah. in this case, certain research, while this research is utterly absurd. And uh, that was the moment where I, and also I published about this problem in psychology, and to my surprise, 90% of my colleagues became angry with me. And while, while the examples I gave, while the examples I gave were extremely clear, I think, and that was also why my book by my first book also became known in the world of, of psychology. It was I, I my examples were extremely clear, uh, showing that why why most psychological research actually couldn't make sense, at least in my opinion. And uh, even then, the the more clear my examples were, the more angry people became. Mm -hmm. And a few people didn't. A few people really appreciated me because of my work. And from then on, I started to be interested as how. It is possible that highly educated and in many respects also highly intelligent people, because most of my colleagues are intelligent people. It's, 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 they are and definitely highly educated people. They belong to the most highly educated people in the world. And I became interested in this question as to how it is possible that even highly educated and intelligent people uh, can continue to buy into narratives that in most respects, are absurd. And and when the corona crisis started, uh, I, I had the impression that I just the entire learning process I went through during the last 15 years, that this learning process repeated itself, but in, in a few months. I started to study the statistics of the corona crisis, the mortality rates of the virus, the mathematical models of Imperial College, Immediately from the first weeks of the crisis, I started to publish opinion papers, really from the first week, warning people like, no, 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 the mortality of the virus, in my opinion, is 10 times lower at least than the mathematical models say. And uh, after three months, it was proven, I think, beyond the shade of a doubt that the initial models had been completely wrong and that more or less in line with what I said, the mortality was at least 10 times lower. 
But what I noticed was that society continued to buy into the narrative <laughs> as if the models had been right. And that was the moment where I started to think like, look, okay, I can continue with trying to show people that the statistics are wrong, or I can do something else. I can try to describe people, make people aware of the psychological processes that are going on and that make them uh, buy into narratives that are absurd. And a little bit to my surprise, this worked. <laughs> I, 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 I published, after three months, I published my first small opinion paper about mass formation, which took me three months to write. And I, 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 I had been on the verge of giving up 100 times because it seems impossible to articulate this complex theory in, in only 1,500 words. Um, uh, but, but I think because of my background in individual psychology, uh, my expertise was personality psychology. And I, I explained the process of mass formation from the perspective of individuals in the first place. And I think that was the reason why many people uh, could feel what I said. They recognized it in their own lives. And uh, in a few months, it spread. Or in one year, it spread around the world. There's a, there's a, there's a narrative about mass formation. Yeah. It's, um, this is a Gnostic podcast, which means it, it deals with powers and principalities as ideas, right? So uh, in the sense of going to war with uh, thought or, or being assailed by things that you actually can't fight, <laughs> you can't physically fight. And what I found so enjoyable about your book, and now that just clarified it for me a little bit more, is a psychologist who understands or is working with the limitations of psychology as a cosmovision, uh, that flows in to the book itself because we're talking about, we're trying to step back outside of the world of ideas and fears that people live in. Because if you do, this, was, this is the key, right? You, my father's a psychiatrist and he would say, you don't collude with mental illness. So you can't argue someone uh, who is inside a mental illness, which isn't mass formation, but just go with me on this. You can't argue them out of it, right? Like the, the solution has to, or the medicine has to come from outside. And that confidence is there in your use of uh, ideas and meta ideas, I think, in the book, which brings me, and we'll probably, I mean, maybe we should, although everyone listening to this knows what mass formation is. But one of the things I would like to ask as a follow-on to that is how does it feel to have the criticisms of the theory be explained within the theory itself? Because it's been my experience of watching it that from a mass formation perspective, that I'll, I'll, let, let, me know, let me know how my definition of it goes. But we have an event like this, 30% of the people go along with it, 30% who are much more diverse don't go along with it for different reasons. And then we have the bit in the middle that's subject to the sway. Now, if I look at the so-called freedom, truth, health, whatever you want to call it, community, we have people who, uh, and there's some good and bad in a lot of this, 5G, no virus, bioweapon, Christian apocalypse. <laughs> or, like it's, it's a, a zoo, of, of people <laughs> uh, who can't get it together enough to provide a coherent message to move the, the middle part uh, until it becomes too late. And it was very interesting watching your ideas roll through the 30% that it, that it actually describes and activate <laughs> that, that, that incoherent, uneven response. Is that a fair way of understanding it, you think? Yes, I think so. Um, yes, it's even a very good, um, concise summary of a, an important aspect of, of my work, I think. Because one of the major problems indeed is um, that the group who doesn't fall prey to the, to the large mass formation, that it is an extremely heterogeneous group, which makes it very hard actually to form a real group yeah. <laughs> because of all the different... Um, but at the same time, if you really understand um, the broader cultural and societal problems that led to the mass formation, you see that this diversity 
is the is at the same time the problem and uh, the opportunity for this group because the challenge for this group is always to form a group without becoming a mass and because if this small group becomes a mass itself if it also falls prey to its minor mass formations then it will be destroyed inevitably because it, then you have a large mass and a small mass and the polarization between the two and uh, as soon as the people fall prey to a small mass formation they cannot speak the truth anymore because in a mass you always try to convince you become a fanatic believer in a certain idea or a certain ideal or a collective ideal and uh, there is nothing further removed from the truth than the fanatic blind belief in an ideal or a collective ideal and um so it's exactly the diversity of the group which gives it the chance to become a group in which the unifying principle or the most important unifying principle is exactly that everyone is encouraged to articulate his own opinion not only to have his own opinion but to articulate it and that is exactly what truth speech is truth speech is resonating speech and this resonating speech emerges when there is someone who has the courage to articulate his own opinion his own private most singular truth in the presence of people who think differently and there is a second characteristic of truth speech and resonating speech and it is that there is someone who wants to hear what this person has to say so we need someone who speaks the truth without caring about the fact that what he says might make him less popular or might uh, meet with contrary or different opinions and someone who is prepared to listen without judging what the, this speaker has to say uh, without um, thinking about how it relates to certain collective ideals or uh, the matrix of social rules that is present everywhere and if this happens then you have resonance you have you, ha you have someone who speaks from what he feels inside of himself and you have someone who opens us up his ego his outer ideal image and let the speech of the other enter his own body his own soul let it touch the strings of his own soul that's when resonance starts and that's when where people really connect to each other so the truth is something strange truth is something that is strictly unique individual and singular but which touches if you speak like that if you speak your own very individual truth the strange thing is that if you do that you will touch a universal string in the other and which makes that the truth is at the same time strictly individual and strictly universal which means that the truth is a paradox <laughs> and and that's a the, the truth transcends all logical or rational understanding so that that's that's the kind of speech we have to practice and that's this kind of speech which will be the remedy both for the mass formation because it slows down the mass formation it inhibits the hypnosis because it's truthful speech who doesn't care about the collective ideal of the masses and of the totalitarian system it disturbs the massive resonance of the individuals in the grip of mass formation with their collective ideal so it inhibits the symptom the hypnosis in the mass formation and at the same time it is the cure for the root psychological cause of the mass formation which always is the loneliness and atomization of society because what truth speech does is connecting people it makes them resonate together one individual with another and it takes away the isolation of the individual and the mass formation seems to take away the isolation of the individual the loneliness but it doesn't it creates yeah. even more loneliness because it doesn't connect people to each other it connects them with a collective ideal and it makes them report each other to the state it makes them snitch on each other so it is all my next book is about truth speech i i have described the solution 
uh, I have described uh, the problem in my in my previous book in the psychology of totalitarianism. And I really want to focus on this art of speech, which is, I believe, we should understand that there can be no really human living together if we do not value truth speech. The truth is crucial to a man, to a, to a, to a, to a human being. Mm-hmm. And in a society led by propaganda and indoctrination, there can be, in the end, every humanity is destroyed. And that's what we, the real revolution that should happen is that there is only one crisis. There is no climate crisis or no uh, no uh, uh, corona crisis. I don't say that we have no problems with nature. We have, there is, and, 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 and there, there is, but, but I mean the real crisis, what is really in crisis is the truth. And that's what we should find out. How can we reappreciate uh, the value of truth speech? How can we learn to speak the truth? Because it's not something easy. Uh, we should not be naive about that. Speaking the truth is, is something completely different than think to think rationally, for instance. It's completely different. It's even almost opposite to each other. Yeah, well said. Yeah, I think uh, and going back to Gordon, it reminds me what uh, about your sister, what Michael Malice said, the easiest dog to train is the smartest dog. And when you talk to magicians, <laughs> they think that the smartest person in the room is always the easiest to hypnotize or fool. It's almost like a form of jujitsu. You use their intelligence works against them. And uh, I love what I like about your book is you don't just say everything happens in a vacuum. You talk about how it happened and then you give wonderful solutions at the end. And I think for totalitarianism to rise was sort of the shadow side of the enlightenment, the Cartesian model where something every, where reason became supreme and we thought we could cure everything by simply adding something, subtracting, putting people in cubicles and humanity was the hackable ant the hackable animal, and suddenly this was, as you you just said, Matthias, this leads to alienation, a lack of meaning, meaning, Jordan, I mean, Gordon, you talk about that in your book, we're alienated from nature, from our humanity, from magic, all the stuff that made us great, that brought about the Enlightenment, was cut off, and this gives rise to totalitarianism. So I don't know if you want to speak more to this, Matthias, or maybe tell the audience who might be thinking, well, what's the difference between totalitarianism and a dictatorship? I mean, Genghis Khan, Emperor Severus, uh, uh, they had complete power, didn't they? What's the difference? What's a totalitarian regime? Uh, it's something completely different. Um, because, uh, well, the so-called classical dictatorships, and um, it's maybe a little bit simplistic the way in which I will explain it now, but it's sufficient for what we... Uh, for uh, to be able to to grasp the difference, you know, in a, in, in a classical dictatorship, the point of gravity of the system is in the dictatorial regime. It's a small group of people who are perceived as having a huge aggressive potential. Uh, that's why people are scared of them, and why people accept that a small group of people unilaterally impose their social contract to society. And Genghis Khan was very powerful, but. He was not so powerful that he could control uh, what happened in every house and every tent and in every family. Why not? Uh, uh, just because he was, he was he was limited as well. He has a limited number of people at his disposal. But if you t- take a look at the totalitarian system, then you see that uh, a totalitarian system is based on a completely different psychological process. Uh, it's it's first you have the emergence of a mass. So first. There is a kind of very specific group formation which makes that people start to believe fanatically in a certain narrative, so fanatically, as I explained, that they want to report even their own family members who don't, who are not loyal enough to the narrative according to, to them. That makes that in a totalitarian system, that a totalitarian system has a huge secret police at its disposal. Namely, this part of the population who, fanat- who, who fanatically believes in a narrative. And this, exactly, in every family, in every house, or almost every house, there is such a person. 
And people are safe nowhere, even not in the presence of their own children. The small children of eight years of age reported their parents to the state in Nazi Germany and in the Soviet Union and in Iran and so on. So that's a problem. That's why a totalitarian system has a much, much more suffocating impact on the population. And and, and then why the totalitarian system can control on top of political space and public space, as classical dictatorships do, can also control private space. And so that's, that's, um, and indeed, indeed, these totalitarian states didn't exist before the 20th century. That's very, very important. Uh, Mm -hmm. And one of the questions, one of the questions that I wanted to answer, uh, because I didn't understand that, was exactly why uh, these new state systems emerged for the first time in the 20th century. And um, it's it's actually quite easy. It's because uh, throughout the last few centuries, um, the process of mass formation became stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and lasted longer and longer and could be controlled much more efficiently. Uh, The modern masses, mass formation has always existed, but the modern masses are different from the ancient masses in several respects. And the most important difference is that the modern masses are so-called lonely masses. It's Jacques Ellou who uh, coined that term of the lonely mass. A lonely, you know, the Crusades or the witch hunts were also mass formations, but the masses to become a mass had to meet physically. And modern masses do not have to meet physically. In modern mass formations, the individuals that constitute the mass are usually sitting separately, lonely, in their living rooms without ever meeting each other. But they are infused constantly by the same narratives, the same mental representations, the same beliefs through the mass media. And in this way, they start to form a mass that never physically meets a so-called lonely mass. And this lonely mass can be controlled in a much more efficient way, is much more predictable, and can last much longer. And it is in this way that it can lead to the emergence of a new state system. Ancient masses couldn't, because they were very unpredictable, and they usually um, could uh, uh, stop to exist uh, before they could lead to, to a stable like the masses of Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, uh, the mass formations lasted for over 30 years because they led to the emergence of a real totalitarian state that never never happened in, uh, before in history. So, um, so there you see why it's 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 this is this Hannah Arendt, which is I think the most uh, important writer about uh, totalitarianism. She um, uh, she explained or she she always stated that. Totalitarianism is a diabolic pact between the masses and the elite. And mm. uh, in my book, I provide a psychological explanation for that. Um, like this, it's it's in the end, I think, it's the rationalist, mechanist fuel man in the world, which led both to the emergence of a new elite and the emergence of a new population or a new psychological state in a population. And um, this new elite was an elite which used very excessively indoctrination propaganda. Uh, you, I explained that elsewhere. I won't do it now. Why Why that happened? But it happened. And the new psychological state in a population was a state in which people were lonely, experienced lack of meaning-making, a lot of free-floating anxiety, frustration, and aggression, which is exactly this kind of state where people are vulnerable for indoctrination yes. propaganda. And that's the this- diabolical. Yeah, yeah. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. And this is the part, I think, Matthias, that uh, was willfully in some respects, but sometimes not uh, misunderstood when it comes to your detractors, because if I think of, say, um, Dr. Bregan being so triggered by the mischaracterization of what you just said as people being asked, people asking for um, this tyrannical treatment. That's not what, that's not what this is. <laughs> this is, um, 
this is methadone. So if people are already lonely and scared and sad and unhappy and isolated, a synthetic solve for that when they don't know any different is something that they resonate with and, and ask for. And, and it's, a, it's an unconscious group process of people who are already lonely and isolated. It's the inevitable fulfillment. We're talking about the enlightenment and so on and why modern mass formations are different. We are reaching the inevitable conclusions of a collection of ideas and claims about reality that have a lot of shortcomings, <laughs> at least in their output. And that, I think, is so important. It's why it's a very Gnostic idea. I'm glad you're, you're on this show, that uh, there is a pseudo-medicine that is offered to the lonely and sick. And the, the diabolical part is they don't understand that it's a, it's a pseudo-medicine. It's a poison. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, not, yeah. it's not the actual... Uh, it's not the actual medicine. And I found that really fascinating to watch how um, the criticisms un unfurled. Some of it was a deliberate mischaracterization in bad faith, as far as I can tell. But a lot of it was misunderstanding because perhaps they don't have your background, an academic background in the history of Western ideas, so that they're unfamiliar with what Richard Tarnas would call ontological estrangement and so on. And it's not someone sitting there like the meme, govern me harder, daddy. It's not that, <laughs> right? It, it's actually, it's it's a wound. <laughs> People are asking for, uh, asking for this treatment, quote unquote, or, or responding and resonating with it because they're in a place of pain and it looks, they're tricked into it looking like medicine. Is that fair, would you say? Yes. Uh, and you know what, I, I, uh, I, I want to, to say that I think it's a pity um, that me and Dr. Briggan and Dr. Malone, for instance, and uh, Dr. Briggan's wife, uh, Ginger Briggan, if I remember well, um, cannot just talk with each other. We, we should give, we should lead by example and show that uh, on our side, if people have a different opinion, uh, they do not isolate from each other, but they just uh, have a conversation. They just they just um, share words with each other. And, you know, from my side, I, I really respect Dr. Brigham. I think uh, he has done important work exposing certain of the, of the really, the, 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 the cruelties of our uh, pharmaceutical industry and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, even the pharmaceutical academic world. And so from my side, there are no hard feelings. And uh, I, I want to respond to all of his criticism. I did actually on my Substack page, I responded to his criticism, to a part of his, because it was very elaborate. He, he wrote many articles about me um, and, uh, and Dr. Malone. Dr. Malone was a friend of mine. I immediately want to tell that. Uh, uh, I, I think uh, I am very grateful uh, at the intellectual level for what uh, Robert Malone uh, did at the level of uh, uh, how he helped me to, to spread my theory. And, and also I, I learned to know him as a person. He's, a, he's, he's just a very nice person, I think. Um, uh, and then so, but 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 I, I, I definitely I I, uh, I think uh, I want to respond to the criticism of Dr. Bregan. For instance, maybe it's true that I could have stressed the role played by the elite a little bit more. Sure. That's possible because one of the things he approaches me is that I blame the victims. That's not true. That's um, that's unfair. Like yeah, I would just, just interrupt. That's not. True. It's not yes. fair, and like, it's even so, less true that they yeah. that. Um, Mass murderers in my clinical practice. That's that's yes, definitely not true. Uh, there, there, now, there was, like, you know, the, I, I, the only I've thing that happened, yeah, go on. Sorry. Uh, the the only thing that happened here back in 2017, I think, or something like that, was that a man who had been consulting in my clinical practice for a certain time, two years or something, I think. Um, was uh, at a certain moment uh, caught by the police because he, 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 he as a nurse, he had uh, terminated the lives of uh, several people uh, and he was known in Belgium at that moment as the 
the largest serial killer in the history of Belgium, which was a mischaracterization of him. Uh, uh, purely technically speaking, one could call him like that, but he fine, was a mischaracterization. It doesn't matter. I had promised this guy that everything he said would stay in my practice, even before I, I, I knew something of him. And then I was uh, asked to be a witness at his trial, and I refused to speak. But that's what a psychologist should do, I think. And then that was the first time that I, I just said, like, look, for me, it's crucial that there is a space in society where people know that they can talk about everything in a safe way, because exactly this will prevent people from committing crimes. If they can talk about what they feel, and if they want to talk about it, they will not need to do it. And after he visited me, he never did it again. And I took a huge risk. I was aware of that. Because if, if he would have done something, then everyone would have blamed me that I didn't go to the police, of course. But I knew that this is a not the right re line of reasoning. If people who feel the urge to commit crimes have no safe space anymore, much more crimes will be committed. And in my case, I knew almost for sure that he wouldn't do any, anything anymore. And it doesn't matter. I had to be a witness. And for seven hours straight, I refused to give my... Um, my clinical uh, reports and um, uh, I suddenly was on the front page of all newspapers and then the evening news and so on and Dr. Beckham has found this and he, he said that uh, I clearly uh, have a certain characteristic that makes me protect murderers which according to me is bullshit <laughs> it's just everything who everyone who takes his profession as a psychologist seriously should know that it is a difficult procession, uh, profession, and that if he has an, that he, if he promises people that he he will uh, stay loyal to professional secrecy, he should do so. And it's not because he's put, put under pressure by a judge that he should start to say what people told him. And every count can has his own opinion, but I know as a person that I put everything at risk at that moment to stay loyal. To what I think are the right principles as a psychologist and as a human being. That was the only reason, not because of one or another wish to protect mass murderers, not at all. Um, yeah. And that's exactly the same characteristic that made me speak in the corona crisis from the first week on. Because I knew, so someone said to me, a colleague said to me, you're a very strange uh, guy. He said, you, re you remain silent when other people speak and you speak when other people remain silent. <laughs> and, it's, and somewhere it is true. And, and But I know for me, I'm quite confident that it is because for me, I do my best and I don't always succeed, but I do my best to stay loyal to the principles of humanity, which means in the first place uh, that as a human being, I try to take the linguistic bond between people very seriously. People or human beings are human beings because they speak and because they have this very profound and fundamental relationship with words. And if we uh, do not take our words and the words of other people seriously anymore, uh, then um, uh, we will end up in a completely inhumane society. And that's what we should avoid, I think. Yeah, so my favorite public intellectuals who are also psychologists like yourself, I think, have an understanding that psychology is a limited definition of something much bigger and more sacred, uh, which we can't quite, we've been trying for millennia to get into words with philosophy and religion and so on, which is to, like the, the transcendental nature of truth that you're mentioning and mm -hmm. uh, an individual's relationship to being in resonance with it and that somehow being metaphysically important in a way that's bigger than what we might describe in individual psychology, I think is one of the things that I resonate with in your work. And it's funny you mentioned Dr. Malone in that context, because something I've been sitting with, because I was sharing your stuff before Dr. Malone went on Rogan. And then he added the P word. My father's psychiatrist, psychosis is a very uh, clinically precise <laughs> term. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, oh, this isn't gonna go well. Uh, but it's funny. Right, because you said earlier in the episode that you started sharing these ideas and then within a year they went around the world. 
And one of the reasons they went around the world was, of course, Dr. Malone going Owen Brogan uh, and, and adding psychosis to the end of mass formation. And I thought, oh, this is not going to go well. And then I think about it and go, well, maybe. But if that hadn't happened, then the notion wouldn't have, even in its imprecise form, traveled to where it may have needed to get to to help other people or, or to change. And do you have like, this is a metaphysical question, I suppose, Matthias, but do you have a, a philosophical read on that moment? Because it's the, the biggest show in the world. It was at the time the biggest episode that Rogan had ever done. And this idea shows up crooked. <laughs> and, and it's like, hang on. How do we sit with that now? Like, are we, are we like, oh, I'm mostly happy that that happened because at least part of the idea got out. And it just seems like one of those funny, sacred, it's like there's something more going on in reality that we can't get something like that out cleanly. Does that make sense? Do you know what I mean? Ah, yeah, yes. But, you know, it was more complex than that because uh, it was not Robert Malone. It was not Robert who added the term psychosis. I will use right. the word. I will say the word. To, yeah. to, to mass formation. Um, you know, if I'm not mistaken, it was uh, uh, Chris Martinson. Okay. Um, yeah, but but uh, if Dr. Martinson listens now, please excuse me if I'm wrong, but I think that, uh, I think that uh, Chris was the first one who added the word psychosis to it. It could have been Aubrey Marcus, but I don't think so. I think it was Chris Martinson. And... Um, uh, in this way that I, I had a podcast with him and he wrote uh, a podcast with, which had, I think, about half a million views, quite a lot. Um, and he, um, and he, he used as a title Mass Formation Psychosis. Oh, and, okay. Yes, yes. yes. And, and Dr. Malone, so Robert, um, watched several podcasts of me and, and, uh, and after Chris Martinson, several other people used the term as well. And then mm -hmm. Robert used it. And, uh, well, of course, at Rogan's, and as you know, I think, I think it had 54 million views in a very short time or something, this podcast of, uh, of, uh, of Dr. Malone. And, um, but immediately, I, 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 uh, I was, I, afterwards, I was talking with, uh, with Robert, and um, I said, well, I don't agree with the use of that term, because uh, both from an intellectual, uh, pragmatic, uh, and an ethical point of view, it's not correct, I think, to... to use the term psychosis and uh, Robert immediately agreed and he always afterwards he always said that he didn't use it that he didn't use the term anymore he always explained to people why he didn't mm -hmm. so I think I think Robert didn't make a, a real mistake but I, I at the same time I, I hear what you say of course it's true it's because someone added the term psychosis to it probably that it resonated more with, with certain people and um, yeah that's that's a hard one. I wouldn't do it, but <laughs> but of course, at the same time, it is true that more people and that, but but I think you know it has an advantage. It might have spread faster, but mm. at the same time, it also provoked more resistance. I think against the yes. term because it, yeah. it it blames other people, it stigmatizes people, it it psychiatrizes people, and uh, I think it's unethical to do so. And as I said, it's also intellectually not really appropriate. I mean, psychosis is a term from individual psychology, and you should refrain, I think, using it uh, for such phenomena, uh, which, of course, show certain similarities. Uh, but so many phenomena show certain similarities with psychosis. Uh, I, 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 I love Freud for this wonderful quote. Uh, there are three ways to be normal, he said. Uh, 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 neurotic, psychotic, and perverse. And... and, and <laughs> And you know, the the no the, the best thing, the best position is a position in which you acknowledge we are all a little bit crazy, and from certain and from times to from time to time even uh, very crazy, uh, and we should be careful if we call other people crazy. I think, um, yeah. As Jung said, "Show me a sane man, and I'll cure him for you." So, <laughs> yes, <laughs> and I. Uh, <laughs> yeah, in your book, again, I want to go back to maybe some solutions. You gave some solutions, too. Uh, and again, going back to how we were disengaged or how we've become this mechanistic society. And again, uh, for the audience, uh, 
uh, Gordon deals with it in his book Animistic. So get Animistic and the Psychology of Totalitarianism for the the red pill, if you would. But it seems one of the promises of uh, the Enlightenment and uh, everything else beyond the fact, as you say over and over again, that reason will save us. Reason will set us free. Uh, and I love this quote, too, going from uh, G.K. Chesterton, a madman is not a man who has lost his reason. He is a man who has lost everything except his reason. I think that encapsulates your book well in what Hannah Arendt is saying. But I think the idea of safety is also killing us, don't you think, Matthias? We were promised we would live forever, as Lenin said in the Bolsheviks, and that everything would be solved and we could be safe. That has worked against us, don't you think? And it's killing us. It, it has. And I think uh, we have to watch out how we think about uh, um, the explanation or about the causal relationships between these things. I think it is because we locked ourselves or because we, we uh, became so fanatically obsessed by rational knowledge and rational thinking that we ended up in a psychological state in which we um, were radically uh, incapable of accepting that there are risks in life and that uh, we might uh, that if you live uh, you have to accept that you will lose your life and like the capacity to tolerate the ideas about death and dying uh, diminishes the more you try to live your life in a rational way, I think, and the more you start to realize that your rational thinking will always be incapable of grasping the essence of life. Because that's exactly what science shows us, strangely enough. Mm. All great scientists shows, showed us that there is an absolute limit to rational understanding and that the essence of life always transcends rational understanding. And it personally, it took me until I was 35 years old before I really realized that. that, that exact, that's exactly what systems theory showed us, for instance. That all phenomena in nature, complex dynamical phenomena, behave like irrational numbers. And suddenly I realized that, it is, that you have to take this literally. Our rational use of language our rational thinking can never grasp the essence of life. It's the essence of life resonates. We can only feel something of, of, the, of the essence of life at certain moments through resonating with life. And uh, the more we believe that with logical ideas and the categories of our rational thinking, we will be capable of, of, of grasping the essence of life. The more we lock ourselves away, we hide ourselves behind the wall of logical thinking. And the less we are capable of resonating with the eternal mystery of life, and the more we are capable of resonating with this eternal music of life, as I often call it, the less we fear death and dying. Because we feel yeah. that we are part of something eternal. And uh, that's, I think that's one of the explanations why uh, the more and the further uh, the tradition of enlightenment um, evolved, the less capable we'll be, the, the more afraid we became of dying, the less uh, uh, capable we became of accepting that life is full of risks. Um, uh, and the more we started to drift away in uh, illusionary worlds, uh, in which we started to believe that science would make us immortal, um, would take away all suffering from the human being. Uh, quite to the opposite, I think. Quite to the contrary. Uh, the more we uh, fall prey to that delusion, um, the less we will be able to live a life really uh, worth being lived uh, uh, by a human being, I think. Um, That's lovely. It brings up a maybe last question or towards the end, but you may have noticed that there is talk of masks and infection numbers and new mRNA injections and everything around and about these last couple of weeks. How do you think it's going to go this time or next time? 
Niels Bohr said, predicting is always difficult, and in particular, if it is about the future, he said. Um, well, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it worked again. Yeah, um, me too. Yes, wow. because and th th that's the strange thing that that as soon as you understand that people didn't care about whether the narrative was uh, uh, right or wrong that's the secret of the entire phenomenon that people like for instance many people were happy with the lockdowns myself included to a certain extent because life, I, I enjoyed it somewhat yeah like life at university <laughs> became very hard. Nothing worked anymore in the bureaucratic systems. And in a country like Belgium, I don't know how many, what percentage of people work in a bureaucratic environment, but a lot. And, 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 and most people, suddenly, if you had a garden like I, ha like I had, if you have a large garden in a nice house and so on and so on, I just felt as if I had an unexpected holiday for two months, and the weather was very nice, and and so on. So while while I was very uh, well, well, while I understood that something uh, very serious was happening, uh, at the same time I have to admit that me and most of my friends and my neighbors sometimes I heard my neighbors talk saying like, "Look, well, it's 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 uh, uh, it's terrible what happens with that virus, but uh, but at the same time, well, you have to know uh, uh, it's 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 a good thing that the rat race stops for a moment, and so that's one part of the story. But even more fundamental, people people really, uh, if you consider it at the right psychological level, people didn't buy into the narrative because they thought the narrative was right. They bought yes. into the narrative, as he explained so many times, because it gave them a feeling of control. At the level of their anxiety, at the level of their frustration and their anger, and first and foremost, it gave them a feeling of being connected again, of having a higher cause to live for, a sense of meaning and purpose in life. It, without them knowing it, it gave them a set of rituals which made them feel what they truly are, symbolic beings which are willing to sacrifice their lives for a certain symbolic construction, a narrative. The only mm. problem is that the rituals became rituals of death. And that while performing the, rit uh, the, the rituals, they refused to acknowledge that they were performing rituals. They refused to acknowledge that they are symbolic beings. And of course, the other problems we have already summoned. But, but you know, if you, if, you, if you understand that, then you understand that the reason why people buy into the narrative, or at least do as if the narrative is true, has nothing to do with the rational qualities of yeah. the narrative. It has to do with the psychological function the narrative has. And that's why I think that there is a good chance that they buy into it again, or if it's not this narrative, it might be the, the climate narrative or the Ukraine narrative or another narrative, of which I don't say that there is nothing true about it, but of which I say that the fear that is... Uh, uh, Used by these narratives is more dangerous than the than the than 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 the the crisis uh, about which narratives uh, go. That's that's a little bit uh, what I uh, what I think. Uh, exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> Look at the war uh, mass formation. This is the last war. This is the last world war, and we're right back in it. I mean, it's the mass formation just kicks in. So it'll be it'll it'll definitely be something. And I. I do like uh, Gordon. You keep bringing in your podcast and shows the the sin of the demiurge, and again that he's the great example of the mechanistic being. William Blake wrote about him in Urizen. William Blake kept warning: we are heading in the wrong direction in this mechanistic universe, and it's going to bite us in the ass. And here we are. I, I, I use the painting of him in my book. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I think I, re I think I refer to him in my book as well. I think mm -hmm. I refer. To Oh. Yeah, the look. The, your book is so rich. We only scratched the surface. I highly recommend people get it. Uh, we we didn't even get into some of the other stuff like chaos theory, quantum physics. Uh, so much, you know, the uh, Hannah Arendt and Adolf Eichmann and stuff that will chill you, chill you to the bone. Especially all the examples of uh, 
what happened in the Soviet Union. It's just, it's chilling, but it's inspirational. So, but I know you have to go. Well, first, Gordon, thanks for, uh, thanks for being here. We'll call this this AM Byte Rune Soup joint. Yeah, absolutely. Mess, especially, no, especially if it gets uh, taken down from YouTube, we'll have to put it on Rumble. <laughs> or Rumble. <laughs> so. I think, yeah, it's, it's my pleasure. Uh, like I said, it's a, it's a pleasure to meet you, Matthias, and after having read your book and, and resonating so strongly with your ideas. Yeah, likewise. I like the conversation uh, with you guys and uh, the format as well. And well, uh, I wish we had uh, more time because we can talk uh, much longer about uh, all this, uh, these uh, subjects. But uh, well, uh, for now, uh, um, I will have to go here. <laughs> and uh, maybe we see each other again somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Please. Yeah. Let's, do it. Let's do it. Thank you. Thank you. Have you ever wondered how totalitarian regimes rise to power? This question, far from being a mere historical curiosity, is a pressing concern for our societies today. To answer it, we need to turn to the work of Hannah Arendt, a renowned political theorist who meticulously dissected the origins of totalitarianism. This exploration can shed light on the mechanisms that allow such regimes to take hold and serve as a cautionary tale for us all. So what are the origins of totalitarianism? Let's delve into Hannah Arendt's insights. Arendt begins her exploration by identifying three fundamental origins of totalitarianism. This trio of roots, as she describes, are anti-Semitism, imperialism, and the rule by nobody. Each one, in its own way, contributed to the rise of some of the most oppressive and brutal regimes in history. Firstly, Arendt explores anti-Semitism a virulent form of prejudice that has plagued societies for centuries. She emphasizes that anti-Semitism is not merely a form of bigotry, but a political tool wielded by totalitarian leaders. They exploited the deep-seated biases, scapegoating Jewish people for societal ills, thus uniting the populace under a common enemy and consolidating their own power. Next, Arendt delves into imperialism, the second route. Here she refers to the 19th and early 20th century European imperialism that sought to expand territories and influence. This expansionist era was marked by the suppression and marginalization of indigenous populations, creating a hierarchy of human value and laying the groundwork for totalitarian thinking. In essence, imperialism normalized the idea of ruling over others without their consent. Finally, Arendt introduces us to the concept of the rule by nobody. This might sound like anarchy, but it's far from it. Instead, it's a system where bureaucracy and depersonalized institutions hold sway, where individuals are reduced to mere cogs in the machine. This depersonalization, Arendt argues, can lead to a loss of individual responsibility and a sense of helplessness among the populace. It is in such an environment that totalitarian leaders can seize control, promising order and stability. These three elements, anti-Semitism, imperialism, and the rule by nobody, are not independent, but interconnected, each feeding off and reinforcing the others. They create a fertile ground for the seeds of totalitarianism to take root and flourish. These origins, as Arendt explains, set the stage for the rise of totalitarian regimes. But how does this process unfold? Let's delve into that in the next scene. A totalitarian regime doesn't just appear overnight, it is a gradual process, carefully orchestrated. In the complex web of totalitarianism, Hannah Arendt pinpoints three critical strands, propaganda, the use of terror, and the manipulation of the masses. Let's untangle them one by one. Propaganda, a tool wielded with precision, distorts reality and crafts a new world in the minds of the people. It's not just about spreading lies, but about creating a parallel universe where these lies are the only truths. Then there's the use of terror. This isn't just physical brutality. It's a psychological warfare designed to instill a constant state of fear, a fear so pervasive that it stifles the voice of dissent and forces compliance. People aren't merely afraid of the regime. They're afraid of each other, perpetuating an environment of mistrust and isolation. Lastly, we have the manipulation of the masses. The regime exploits existing societal fractures, deepening divisions and brewing hatred. It's a divide and conquer strategy, but instead of conquering territories, it conquers minds. 
These elements, intertwined and mutually reinforcing, slowly erode the democratic fabric of a society. They weave a tapestry of control where the threads of truth are lost amidst the more prominent strands of deceit, fear, and division. This brings us to the chilling realization of how easily societies can slip into totalitarianism. But what does this mean for us today? Arendt's exploration of totalitarianism isn't just a historical analysis, it is a warning to all societies. This warning is all the more relevant in our present day context. Arendt's insights compel us to be vigilant, to maintain our critical thinking and to participate actively in the democratic processes. We live in a world where information is abundant, but truth seems elusive. It's a world where the loud voices of the few can drown out the reasoned discourse of the many. In such a world, the risk of totalitarianism is ever present. Arendt's work reminds us that totalitarianism doesn't always arrive with a bang. Often it creeps in with a whisper. It begins with the erosion of shared truths, the devaluation of critical thinking, and the marginalization of dissenting voices. As we reflect on the origins of totalitarianism, we are reminded of our responsibility to safeguard our societies against such threats. Because as Hannah Arendt shows us, the seeds of totalitarianism are often sown in the most ordinary of circumstances.